Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Most people in the United States know, because they learned it in school or have heard it at some point in their lives, the words of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, particularly the first 16 words, which read, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. What many don't know and are surprised to learn is about the contribution Baptists made not only to the inclusion of religious liberty to the First Amendment, but also to the protection of that liberty for all people since its adoption. What many also don't know and are surprised to learn is the reason some Baptists are so passionate about the issue of religious liberty for all people. Central to the understanding of the capacity of faith of any kind for such Baptists is the conviction that for it to be true faith, it is a faith that has been embraced by the free choice of an individual without coercion. Any and all people must be free to choose for or against any belief or religious expression without the coercion from religious or government bodies. Baptists believe such soul freedom is a gift from God given to enable true relationship with God. The extension of soul freedom is the necessity of a free church and a free state. That is why some Baptists have been so passionate about religious liberty for all. Not all who are among the founding folk of our nation affirm this liberty, and many, including some Baptists, to this day still don't and have worked to alter, restrict, and undermine this liberty. Among those who are doing so are what may be called Christian nationalists. Considering myself one of those Baptists who very much affirm and want to seek to promote and defend religious liberty for all people, I am going to keep this issue before you in ongoing episodes. One of the ways I'm going to do that is to have occasional conversations with the Baptist Joint Committee, or BJC. I want to introduce you to the Baptist Joint Committee today. My guest is Amanda Tyler, who is the Executive Director of the BJC. She is a member of the Texas and United States Supreme Court Bar. After graduating with a degree in foreign service from Georgetown University, Amanda worked for the BJC as an assistant to the general counsel. She left the BJC to earn her law degree from the University of Texas. Before returning to the BJC, Amanda has worked in private practice as a law clerk for the U.S. District Court Judge in Dallas and on the staff of U.S. Representative Lloyd Doggett, where she served as his district director and counsel to the Ways and Means Committee. Well, welcome, Amanda. Thank you for being my guest today. Thanks so much for having me, David. I'm glad to be here. Um, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, and now you just call yourself the BJC, uh, but the focus is upon religious liberty, and that seems to be in the news a good deal lately. Uh, so what is religious liberty, and why is it a, such a confusing thing? <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to start because I do think, unfortunately, there is a lot of confusion about the term. We define religious liberty as the freedom 
to believe or not to believe that is included in it. Um, and also the freedom to act on those beliefs, to exercise our religion without unnecessary interference from government. And I think that where a lot of the confusion has come in um, recently is over religious liberty rights. Uh, there's a lot of rights talk in our culture. And I think there is sometimes an idea that that right should be absolute, that it that it's so important that there can't be any infringements on religious freedom rights. And of course, we live in a society and uh, our right, none of our rights are absolute because if they were, then we'd have mayhem in our society. And so I think it's that focus on the unnecessary interference of government uh, that is probably the crux of a lot of the disagreements and confusion about religious freedom now. And so BJC, uh, we hope to try to bring some clarity around those issues. And I think um, thinking about what's happening right now in our country, one recent controversy in some places uh, centers around the COVID-19 pandemic and the uh, way that some government directives for public health reasons have impacted freedom of worship in some sanctuaries across the country. You know, when governments have put into place certain restrictions on gathering size or, um, you know, saying that you can't meet in indoors, you have to meet outdoors, uh, that some people have said, oh, that impacts my religious liberty rights. And so there's conversation around whether the government has the ability to uh, interfere with um, freedom to worship, uh, for to gather, in, which is one of the bedrock pieces of religious liberty. And so we we start looking at, well, how is the government doing it? Why are they doing it? Are they treating religion the same as other uh, gatherings? Are they singling out religion for special disfavor or special favor? So those are some of the questions that go into looking at religious freedom. And so just that brief example shows you it's it's more complex than than just saying, oh, it's my religious freedom to do X. So how does that relate to the issue of separation in church and state? Well, so separation of church and state is really just a shorthand for the way that we protect religious freedom in our founding documents, in our Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, the first 16 words of the First Amendment are, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Uh, so it basically says that government's going to stay neutral when it comes to religion. It's not going to promote religion or a particular religion. It's also not going to interfere um, with religion and its practice, again, unless it has a really compelling reason to do so, as we were just um, talking about. And so I think there is confusion sometimes not only around religious liberty, but also around this term separation of church and state. Uh, it, I find it more helpful to talk about it as the separation of the institutions of religion and government. In other words, that the state won't try to do the job of the church and the church won't try to do the job of the state. Uh, it does not mean a divorcement of religion from the public square or from public life. Uh, the very existence of BJC, a faith-based organization, proves uh, that religion, religious people have an important role in public life, uh, but that the government itself will stay neutral when it comes to religion, and that best protects religious liberty for everyone, 
no matter what faith tradition we claim or even if we uh, claim a faith tradition at all. How did Baptists get interested in this issue? <laughs> it's a great question. I, you know, I think it really dates back to the beginning of the Baptist movement, uh, all the way back at the beginning of the 17th century, and a theological commitment of Baptists to freedom, uh, and that that extended to religious freedom. It also has a part in our experiences beginning as religious minorities, minorities that faced a lot of oppression from the state. Uh, and so that realization that state oppression could interfere with our freedom to follow God uh, led to a real passion on the behalf of Baptists for advocacy for religious freedom. Um, but it wasn't just for for Baptists, it was for everyone else. You know, early um, Baptist prophets of religious freedom like Thomas Helwes um, would talk about uh, freedom for all people, including agnostics, including for those who don't claim a faith tradition at all. And that Baptist commitment to religious freedom for all continued on these shores with Roger Williams, uh, who was, truth be told, a, a seeker all his life, uh, went, went through a number of different uh, religious traditions, but spent some, some important time as a Baptist, uh, founded the First Baptist Church in America in what's now Providence, Rhode Island, and was, a, was also very committed to religious freedom for all. So uh, as far as BJC, Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, we're really heirs um, to this long Baptist tradition of standing up for faith freedom for all. Uh, we got together in 1936, uh, started out as a joint collaboration uh, project between three major Baptist denominations, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Northern Baptist Convention at the time, now American Baptist Churches uh, USA, and the National Baptist Convention, a predominantly Black convention, um, all got together because they cared about religious freedom for all and uh, set up headquarters in Washington, D.C. Uh, we are still located in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. Today, we're supported by 16 different Baptist bodies and denominations, hundreds of churches and thousands of individuals, Baptists and others, uh, who are all united in support of faith freedom for all. You know, when I talk about specifically about the denominations or Baptist bodies, but also about churches and individuals, I say, you know, these people don't agree on everything. Um, they're, you know, people who are Baptists understand that. There's a the long legacy of freedom, of um, freedom in, of conscience that results in a lot of theological diversity among Baptists. I, I say if they agreed on everything, there wouldn't be 16 different Baptist denominations who are supporting us. Uh, but they all agree on and the importance of, of uh, and a commitment to religious freedom for all. Um, and so uh, we don't speak for Baptists. Um, we can't attempt to do that, but I think we speak to this longtime Baptist commitment of religious freedom for everyone. What is it that you do? Yeah, so we, we um, advocate for faith freedom for all. We are advocates. Um, we're an advocacy and education organization. Um, you know, some people might be surprised when they first learn about us that our work is uh, not only for Baptists, uh, but also for Buddhists. 
uh, Methodists and Muslims, Jews and Jehovah's Witnesses, Anglicans and atheists, and every other religious tradition or um, lack thereof that you could think of, you know, because we know that uh, no one, uh, you know, has freedom if everyone doesn't have freedom. And so it often results, um, you know, Baptists are now not a minority religion. Uh, We are uh, one of the largest Protestant denominations in the United States. And the United States, of course, is still a majority Christian country. Um, So our majority status means that a lot of our advocacy actually ends up being for religious minorities um, these days. And and in doing so, we're really applying from a theological standpoint, we're applying a golden rule of religious liberty, that we are um, standing up for our neighbor's freedom as we would our own. Um, And that kind of um, commitment to the commands of Jesus um, is what inspires the work that we do, um, but we do it for people of all faiths. Well, specifically, how much legal work uh, do you do? Yeah. Well, so, yeah, you're, so I am an attorney by training, um, one of three lawyers on our staff. We have this strategic location on Capitol Hill, and so we have long um, used our position here in Washington to advocate in the halls of power. So we're right across the street from the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh you know, that's where we file friend of the court or amicus briefs. Um, So anytime there's a a case that involves religious freedom, we will look at it closely, see where BJC's voice might be needed in that case. And then um, sometimes on our own, but more frequently in coalition with other groups, uh, we will file a brief um, on behalf of religious liberty. We'll we'll look at the case and really think about how is religious freedom best served um, in this case, and then we'll file um, with with one of the parties, um, typically, uh, in support of their case. And so we filed our first uh, brief of this kind back in 1947 and have been involved, you know, pretty much every term since then in different cases that have come before the court. So from our position on Capitol Hill, we also do a lot of work with the legislative branch, working with Congress, um, both, you know, sometimes if there are bills pending for or against a piece of legislation, but more often in an education role. Uh, helping members of Congress and their staff understand religious freedom issues and how they might come up. Uh, we offer testimony to congressional committees when when asked to do so, um, participate in briefings and, and other work of that kind. Again, much of this work is done in coalition with other interested groups in Washington, both other religious groups and also secular groups who care about religious freedom for all. Um, our work also involves a lot of education of individuals, um, students of all ages. Um, back before the pandemic, we would have 20 or 30 student groups a year coming into our office space to get you know, some Religious Liberty 101 lessons from our education staff, really dynamic uh, sessions. And we'd also do quite a bit of travel um, around the country to churches and educational institutions, conferences to talk about religious freedom. Uh, Right now, a lot of that education work has moved online as so much of our lives have. So we've been participating in uh, different webinars. Um, I'd love to be invited to churches if, if 
other kinds of, you know, via via Zoom if they're presentations. So we're doing some of those as well. We recently launched a BJC book club where people who care about religious freedom are reading books together and, and having discussions like that. Um, and we've also moved more into the space of helping equip supporters to be advocates for religious freedom in their communities. So offering advocacy trainings, trainings on uh, writing letters to the editor and op-eds and different ways to raise your voice and, and show your concern about religious freedom, as well as some you know, topical briefings on some of the issues or cases that are coming up before the court. So a lot on the plate of, um, of our team. We have 11 full-time staff members and uh, working to do as much of this work again in coalition with other groups as possible. Well, that's a lot more extensive than I had imagined that it would be. Uh, so, so kind of what's happening now? Uh, what is it that y'all are doing and addressing at the present moment? Yeah, well, you know, in addition to, you know, chiming in and, and raising our voice when cases of religious freedom come before the court, and there have been a number of cases in the in the last um, few years, uh, there was and I would encourage your listeners to learn a lot more about our work and our stances on different issues on our website, bjconline.org. Um, but we, when we get involved in a case, we will have a, a web page up that really goes more in depth on each of these cases, explaining what the issues are, linking to our brief in the case and what our arguments are. So, for instance, one of the cases that was at the U.S. Supreme Court last year was a case called Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue, and it had to do with um, the question of public funding. Uh, and this case in the form of a tax credit um, that would end up going to private religious schools. Um, and so our, our brief was really a, a more pointing out the historical record of why our country um, in its founding uh, really um, guarded against public funding of religion and understanding how that is a protection for separation of church and state. Unfortunately, in that case, the Supreme Court continued on a trend that it has been on for decades, really, of opening the door wider to government support for religion. So it's a concerning trend that we are continuing um, to watch, uh, but that that's a, a recent case that we were involved in. There are a couple of cases that the Supreme Court has taken so far this year. Um, we'll be filing briefs in those cases, and again, we just encourage your listeners to to check out our website and, and learn more there. Um, in the realm of public advocacy and education, a lot of our efforts recently have been focused on raising awareness, um, both of uh, the major principles of religious freedom, you know, kind of back to where we started in this conversation, trying to find clarity around what religious freedom really means. And one of the reasons we're doing that is we're trying to guard against a really troubling trend that we've seen. Um, it's been around for a long time, but that has increased in the past several years of Christian nationalism. Uh, I, I'll start out with the definition, just like we did with religious liberty. Uh, you know, Christian nationalism is a political ideology or cultural framework that tends to merge our identities as Americans and Christians. It, it suggests that to be a true American, one has to be a Christian, or that to be a, uh, a real Christian, that you're American. Uh, it's it's rooted often in a 
uh, mythological founding of the country as an exclusively Christian nation and idea that um, God had special providence, you know, for their special providence in the founding of America that, um, you know, that uh, the United States is specifically designated as a Christian nation. And, and these, um, this ideology of Christian nationalism is really, we think, a, a, a big threat not only to our unity as Americans, our foundational values of religious freedom for all, of a government that stays neutral when it comes to religion so that religion can flourish in the, in the private sector, um, that it's something that's freely chosen. But it's also a real threat to Christianity, that uh, that a Christianity in the hands of the state can um, become distorted beyond recognition, that it that tries to, you know, stuff God into the contours of a, of a particular nation state um, in a way that betrays Christianity and that can be then used by the state for its, uh, you know, for for its work or its pursuit of empire in a way that really has long-term damage for the religion. Um, so this, uh, we launched an effort called Christians Against Christian Nationalism, and there is a website for that, christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org. The centerpiece of the initiative is a statement of principles, um, principles that people, you know, Christians, just, you know, from a variety of different walks, no matter what they, how they come at theology or politics, um, things that could unite them. And the, the principles are really bedrock principles of religious freedom for all. So for example, one of them is people of all faiths and none have the right and responsibility to engage constructively in the public square. This idea of religion having a strong role in our in our public life, um, but that we don't need government to do that for us. Uh, another of the principles is that patriotism doesn't require us to minimize our religious convictions. That um, to be patriotic is not to be a nationalist. Um, to be and and that we can be patriotic and we can still hold true to our religion and and to merge those identities um, to lean into Christian nationalism really operates as as a threat to to Christianity. So again, another place for your listeners to go and check out. It's a it's designed as a grassroots movement so that individual Christians who can read the statement, if they agree, can sign their name, can share it with others. And it's really an attempt to build uh, awareness around Christian nationalism so we can identify it, um, call it out, and and hopefully um, keep a strong prophetic role for for Christianity in, in public life. Well, now, so is, is it something that, that you actually initiated? Is that something that you all originated or is it something you've joined in on? So we, we did originate it and are leading the effort. And we have also invited and, and brought in a number of different religious leaders into the effort. And so, um, you know, there are a number of different organizational um, heads, denominational heads who have also endorsed the project and shared it with their constituents. And so now the signers represent all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico. Um, signers come from more than six dozen different denominations. Um, it's a mix of clergy and active churchgoers and um, all different areas, rural, urban, suburban of, of the country. Um, people who, who come at 
you know, issues and from a lot of different perspectives, but they agree on these foundational values and uh, they've lent their their time, their name, their support to an effort um, that would really try to um, fight back against Christian nationalism. Well, you, uh, in addition to the to the two resources, the online resources of the BJC online and the Christian against Christians against Christian nationalism, uh, you mentioned the books. And so, for us bookies, uh, <laughs> what are some of the books that you have for your book club? That so uh, yeah, well, we are in the first um, first round of our book club right now, and so the first book that we are reading is called The Color of Compromise. Um, which is by Jamar Tisby, but it's talking about um, racism in the church, really compelling topic. Um, I, so I would highly recommend that book. Another book that um, we aren't saying in the book club at this point, we might in the future, but we featured the author Robert P. Jones, who has written uh, a book that came out this summer called White Too Long, Um the subtitles, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, I think. Um, again, another very provocative book that explores the how racism has been in, at times, you know, the church has been complicit with racism. And I, I think that both of those books really speak again to this topic of Christian nationalism about some of the dangers of a church that becomes too beholden to the state, um, then also uh, has the same sense of the state. And when you think about the original sin of our of our country of of sl- of slavery, you know, and and how the church has at times um, lost its prophetic um, voice on that topic, and is at times its theology has been adapted to support it. Um, I think it's it's a real cautionary tale for our present and our future, and and so learning from our past, I think, is uh, one of the big focuses of our work right now, particularly when it comes to race and religious freedom. So, what about you personally? Uh, what about this work in religious liberty that has made it uh, important enough for you to make it a career? Yeah, you you've been at the BJC twice, right? I have. Yeah. So I, um, I first came to the BJC as an intern when I was a college student at Georgetown University here in Washington. And um, we still have an, a BJC internship program, by the way. So I'd also encourage our listeners to, to check that out. Um, it's, a, it's a great way for um, people who are, you know, usually they're, they're current students or recent graduates who are interested in learning more. Um, but at the time, I, I came to BJC because of a deep interest I had in politics, law, and religion. And I grew up in Baptist churches, and one of the churches that I was involved in in Austin, Texas, a member of, um, the kind of patriarch of the church when I was a young person, uh, Jim Sapp, had been on staff at the Baptist Joint Committee in the 1960s. And so he actually introduced me to the organization. And when I came here and I worked with um, then executive director James Dunn, then general counsel and then future uh, executive director Brent Walker, I just really found um, a community, a cause um, that I was inspired by. I stayed in touch with the organization when I left to go to law school and eventually was on its board. Um, 
And when I was, I was working for a member of Congress and when Brent announced his retirement, felt a strong call to come back to this work. I um, am, you know, passionate about religious freedom and that uh, interest, that passion has only grown with time. You know, uh, I mentioned I'm, I am Baptist and my husband is Jewish and we are raising our son in an interfaith household. Um, and so this idea of religious freedom for everyone, including, you know, my son is, is something that's really foundational to who I am and enough that I wanted to devote my professional life to, to working to ensure everyone has that freedom. Well, this has been a great interview. <laughs> I am thankful for your time and effort. Uh, this is something that I hope will be an ongoing, uh, that we can return and that you can, uh, or, or someone else in the in the BJC can uh, give us uh, specifics on specific issues, something you feel that may need a, an entire episode on that we need to focus upon. Uh, but I wanted my audience to know about this effort, the important work that you do, uh, the resources that you provide. Uh, so, Amanda, thank you for being with me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, David. I'll look forward to returning sometime. All right. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Raber. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace. May the words from my mouth.